0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So I did not study literature in college, however, my junior year I was required to to take a literature elective. And there's a lot of, you know, classic literature electives, right? There's American literature, British literature, maybe an ancient lit. Um, There was even a class on the literature of C.S. Lewis, which was certainly enticing. However, I didn't go with any of these because I had friends tell me about this other class that I was incredibly intrigued by, and they affectionately called this class Monster Lit. And you see, in Monster Lit, what we did is we basically read the classic monster story. So we read John Milton's Paradise Lost, we read Bram Stoker's Dracula, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and a bunch of other ones. And while I thought this was just going to be a fun class reading monster stories, my professor had a different idea. You see, she was using these images, these these stories to paint a picture of the ravages of sin on the human person. And one of the most profound and maybe poignant I- images in this in this vein was the person of Dracula. You guys know about Dracula, right? He's a classic vampire, the classic villain. You know, he's crafty and clever. He um, loved to remain in the dark and kind of lurk nearby watching his prey. He couldn't be seen in reflections and mirrors that made him even more hidden. He, he could shape shift. He loved to control and consume human victims. He's just the classic bad guy. Like, there's nothing good about this guy. But, however, one of the things I learned in this class that I didn't expect is that Bram Stoker himself was a Christian. And so whether or not he realized it, he is giving us an image here in the person of Dracula of the seductive and evil way of sin in our lives. And you see, monster stories like this aren't going anywhere. And I think they strike a chord in our culture and around us because it's touching at something that we all see to some degree. And it's this, that there's something not right about the world. There's something monstrous about it. And you don't have to just look at the news cycle and everything going on in the world to just see it in that way. You can encounter it walking down the street you can see it in the quiet when you're just alone by yourself, and, and you feel the wrestling of those sinful and evil impulses in your own heart and soul. And you see, we might have those times where we, we start the week out really well, we feel really close to the Lord, we feel this the strength to, to go on in the journey towards holiness, but then, you know, we hit the middle of the week or the end of the week, and We suddenly start to get sucked into sinful patterns and sinful habits that we thought we had left behind again, and and it becomes this cycle that never seems to end. But you see, unlike the monster literature, in the passage that Paul was read for us from the book of Romans this morning, Paul's, you know, he's getting at this human struggle, this human problem with wrestling with sin. But unlike the monster literature, which normally does not end well for anybody, uh, Paul actually points us to the freedom, the way of freedom in the good news of the gospel. He doesn't leave us there. And so before we turn, I just want to say that this passage can be a bit confusing. You heard it read. If you read it too fast, you're going to get all twisted up. So here's, here's the, the path that Paul is pointing us towards on the way to freedom. First, he's going to tell us that the law is good. Then he's going to show us that the law is weak. And then he's going to show us that Jesus is strong. So this is the way he's going to take. it. So if you guys want to open your Bibles, I think the Pew Bible, the pages 943 to Romans 7, um, and we'll be sitting in 13 through 25. But you see, this section in 13 through 25, just a bit of context first, finds itself towards the end of a larger point that Paul is making about the law in the whole chapter of 7. So in verses 1 through 6, Paul talks about how the law is only binding on a person when that person is alive. This kind of makes common sense, and he gives this image of a husband and wife, right? So a wife is bound to the law of marriage when she's married to her husband. When her husband dies, when death happens, she has now been freed from that law of marriage in such a way that if she were to marry another, it would not be a sin. And Paul then tells his hearers that they have died to the law in such a way death has occurred so that they may belong to another, namely the person of Jesus Christ. But then he goes on in verses 7 through 12, clarifying for us that the law is not the same thing as sin. We hear all the time about how we are freed from sin, but Paul's clarifying for us here that freedom from sin and freedom from the law aren't exactly the same thing. And he explains that because of the law, we're actually able to see sin as sin. We can name it. And in revealing it, it leads to our condemnation. And so this takes us all the way up to verse 13, where he begins with this question, did that which is good then bring death to me. Good being the law. Is this a good thing? Did that bring death to me? And he emphatically answers his own, his own question, right? No, in no way. And so this is Paul's first point in our journey towards freedom, and it's just the law is good. And I don't think it'd be incredibly shocking or novel for me to say that when we think of the law, the next adjective we use isn't normally good. You know, the law can be lots of different things, but good isn't always the one we go to. We can, we can think of the person who talks about the law too much and they end up sounding like a legalist who only cares about obedience but has no no understanding of grace or mercy or faith, and so it becomes really crushing. Or maybe we can even take a step further back and and look at law in the context of our country or in other countries, and we see unjust laws, laws that are not good, or we see laws that may be good or bad but are twisted in such a way to bring about not good things. And so law doesn't necessarily bring good, and, and if it's that way with just other laws that we see in everyday life, how much more is it that way when we talk about the law of God? And in fact, it's, it's the most human and original thing to rebel against the law of God. We don't want it. We don't think it's good. We, we push back against it. You know, Right now, in our culture, probably the loudest way this happens is, is the way that culture is pushing back against God's law on marriage and sexuality. But it becomes even more subtle, because as we're scrolling through our social media feeds, we suddenly can forget that the Lord commands us not to covet. And we're looking through our feeds, and we're comparing our lives to these other people, and we see what they have and what we don't have, and we want that, and we don't have that. And we start to covet in our hearts. Or maybe in the busyness of life, in in just the work, the school, the sports, all these extra activities, you get sucked into and forget that the Lord commands you to keep the Sabbath day holy. He commands you to rest. And so there's lots of other examples we can talk about here. There's lots of other things in which we find that we might give lip service to the law of God being good, but in a lot of ways in our lives, we don't live like it's good. But in all of these scenarios, it remains true that the law isn't the thing causing us to disobey. It's just naming that sinful tendency to disobey in us. So the law is a lot like a stop sign, right? If you just blow past a stop sign, you still broke the law. The stop sign is still standing there. You could be miles down the road, but that stop sign is still there reminding you, hey, you didn't stop. So this, in point one, Paul tells us how the law is good. But here, in point two, starting in verse 15, he points us to the next thing. The law is weak. So instead of just a driver who blows past the stop sign, Paul's actually showing us that we're more like, in some ways, a driver who sees the stop sign is coming towards it, wants everything in her to try and stop, but the brakes aren't working, right? So she she wants, she knows that it's good to stop and to follow the law, but she can't seem to do it. Something's preventing her. And so let's just read this section again, and this is the part that can be a lot, (laughs) but Paul says this, starting in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing." they're they kind of trying to figure out if, if Paul's talking about himself here or if he's kind of embodying this fictional person wrestling with sin. And, and while that's a worthy discussion, I'm pushing that aside for a moment to just say that Paul here gives us a vivid picture of what it feels like to wrestle with sin. And to some degree, at some point in your life, if you haven't already, you have felt this. You know what this feels like to sit in this place of tension, of you know what is right. and And it kind of haunts you in the way that a monster does, right? It haunts your life. It, it's looking for your destruction. And isn't that kind of the imagery that Scripture gives us? I think back to the, the story of Cain and Abel, and the Lord comes to Cain, and he warns Cain, saying, sin is crouching at your door, and its desires to have you. That's scary. That's, that's Dracula-like, you know? And then in the epistle, in one of Peter's epistles, he tells us that, that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking, for, seeking to devour us, Right? Again, it's, it's lurking around. It's, it's seeking out our destruction. And in this very passage, Paul uses this language about how evil lies close at hand. It's nearby. It's always around us. It's kind of it's scary. And that's just like Dracula. Dracula embodies that same thing in the imagery of the book. He's always lurking around in the shadows. He, he's constantly standing there watching them, and, and the person in the room doesn't notice until suddenly he's like, oh, you know, <laughs> he just doesn't see it. He's sneaky. And he wants to control and manipulate. That's what sin is like. You see, the law reveals this sin to us. It it shines a spotlight on the monster, monster in our hearts. But here, Paul is saying that we run into an issue, right? Because what can the law actually do to help us get rid of the monster? You know, see, try as we might, of our own strength and our own power, it seems that every time we try to push back against the monster, it may disappear for a time, But it just reappears some other point. Never seems to to totally go away. You see, John Stott, a well-known Anglican pastor and writer, commenting on this passage, he points this out. He says, "Having vindicated the law in verses seven through thirteen as not responsible for sin or death, Paul now proceeds to show that nevertheless the law cannot be responsible for our holiness either. The law is good, but it is weak." In itself, it is holy, but it is impotent to make us holy. See, the law stands over us as a judge, but it can't actually make us obey. It can show us the monster, but it can't rid us of the monster. And so then we we find ourselves in this incredibly difficult situation because we know the law is good and that we need to do it, but we can't seem to do it. The law is weak. It can't help us. And then on top of that, we're weak. We can't seem to muster enough strength to push back against these things. And Paul feels this deep tension here in this passage. But you see, what can happen is this tension starts to feel a little less than just kind of like a tension, a pulling, and more like an unceasing burden to us. When you get wrapped and entangled in the webs of sin... It can feel incredibly depressing, right? We, we get sucked into the constant shame and weight of our sin. We become numbed out by our failed attempts at self-transformation. And it begins to feel like we're, we're digging a hole, but we can't seem to stop digging. And on top of that, the dirt's coming back on top of us, slowly burying us. It's, it's a suffocating feeling. And so it's no surprise then that Paul cries out here in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, the weight of our sin and shame is an unbearable thing to carry. But here, Paul does something rather unexpected and maybe even a little bit random, considering what he's just said to us. Because just it seems like, in the same breath that he's asking the Lord for deliverance, asking, Who can save me? It seems like in a cry of relief, he shouts out, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He goes from the depths of despair to the heights of thanksgiving like that. It's incredible. Why why is he doing this? And he does this because he knows that it's only in Jesus Christ can there be true salvation from the terror of sin. So you see, point one, the law is good. Point two, the law is weak. But point three, Jesus is strong. And the primary reason that we know that he can actually deliver us from this terror is because of this one fact. God came to us. And he didn't just come to us, he came to us in our own flesh and bones. He came to us as the person of the Jesus of Nazareth. And in doing so, he brought healing, he brought redemption and reconciliation to the human person, the body and the soul that was soaked in sin and corruption. He healed it. You see, throughout this whole passage, Paul speaks about the sinful corruption of the body. You know, in verse 14, he says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. In verse 18, he remarks, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Or in verse 23, he says, I see in my members another law, making me captive to the law of sin. And by highlighting these, I don't think Paul's trying to tell us to, to hate our bodies or anything like that. The Lord made our bodies they're good. But he's trying to express to us, our bodies are weak. We can't do it on our own. But you see, Jesus did what we couldn't. This is why he's good news. The coming of him is such good news to us because he entered into our frail, human-like state, and he took it up into the life of God. He was tempted but did not sin. He even suffered. He suffered death. But again, he did what we could not do. He rose from the grave, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he sits there right now, glorified. And you see, this is how I know that Jesus Christ, because of what he did, how he came in the flesh to us to save us, how we can participate in that. We can participate in that reality because he has given us his spirit. He doesn't just do it far off and in a distance, but he offers himself to us in the spirit. We are united to his very body, the body that's sitting right now in heaven. And therefore, we are freed to walk in holiness. And I think sometimes, I know this happens to me, we can get stuck in our heads believing the lie that we have the law but no gospel, that, or that this good news proclaimed to us in the law is kind of news in an abstract sense. It's kind of over there, but not something we can really grab hold of right now. We can easily begin to believe that we can't truly participate in the freedom that comes from the Holy Spirit given to us by Jesus. See, but in giving us this Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus' desire is to usher us into a new way of life. He didn't give us the Spirit and then just like, great, you're good. No, he wants you to move towards holiness. He wants you to move towards him. He wants you to move not in a life marked by constant condemnation under the law, but freedom from that condemnation. He, He wants to empower you to obey the law. And even when you aren't able to obey the law or you fail to obey the law, there is grace and love because you are a son and a daughter of God. You see, this chapter in Romans isn't the only place where Paul talks about this. He speaks about the law and the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3. And he points to to Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, right, the law. And you guys all know this story. It came with glory and thunder and lightning, and and Moses saw the the trails of the robes of the Lord as he passed by. And he comes down from the mountain in this, this glory of the Lord that he's been there for so long, and he's holding the law, and he's so bright, his face is so bright that the Israelites can't even look at him. And there's a cover your face, cover your face. We can't even look at you right now. We can't stand the light, right? And Paul looks at this story and he goes, If the if the law came with this much glory, he asks this incredible question. He says, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? And he continues on in 2 Corinthians uh, 3, 17 and 18, saying, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We sang it just a little bit ago. And we all with unveiled face, right? We, we don't need to cover our faces. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, the law is good. It reveals sin to us, but it's weak. It can't make us obey it. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, His desire is to transform us into that image of glory. See, Paul talks earlier in this passage about how the law is spiritual, but he is of the flesh. And what Jesus Christ did is he took our flesh up into the spirit of God. He's making us spiritual as the law is. Not by getting rid of our bodies, but by taking it up into the life of God. This is such good news. And you see, a few minutes ago, we we saw how Scripture speaks about sin and evil as this thing that lurks and seeks after us, wants our destruction. And if the world, the flesh, and the devil has this type of tenacity and wants us with such anger and, and vigor, how much more does Jesus Christ, the lover of your souls, the creator of all the good things that he has given you, long and chase after you? He wants you to come to him. He's coming to you. He doesn't want you to run away in shame. See, he died for you. He went down into the pits of hell because he wants you to be free. He wants you to experience the love, the joy, and the freedom that flow from his embrace. He wants you to be freed from the shame and the guilt that comes with being continually confronted by the law. He wants you to come and be healed from the ravages of sin. And he's offering himself to you right now in this very place. See, Bram Stoker gives us this image of of Dracula as this this embodiment of sin and evil that's that's coming for us, that, that wants to consume us. But Paul's pointing us to another image, the lamb. What could be less monstrous than that? A lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world for you. And so he offers himself to you at the table. He offers himself to you in the reading of the scriptures, and he offers himself to you in the prayer, ministry, and fellowship of his church. So come to him and find rest for your souls. You see, the law is good. It stands over us and shines a spotlight on our sin, but it cannot save us. Therefore, we cling to Jesus Christ, and through the ministry of his church, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, we strive on in the battle against the monstrous spirits of the age. Doing so not with a hopelessness or sadness, but in joy and thanksgiving, knowing that Christ has defeated all of these powers of darkness with the light of his glory, the comfort of the Lamb of God. Therefore, do not lose hope, but trust in the freeing embrace of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.